Life Audio. Welcome to Truth Tribe with Doug Grothuis, where we seek the truth about the things that matter most through reason and evidence, and sometimes have some fun along the way, but not usually. Today I'd like to read an article I wrote in 2017. It was published in Pathios Online. It is called Liturgy for the Low Church. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. I had to do all the liturgy by myself one Sunday in a non-liturgical church. I was not formally prepared to add a sense of the sacred through anything but my statement. But while sitting in the front row awaiting my time to preach, I witnessed a few paltry worship songs, a mock game show involving the recognition of films by film clips, some horribly loud and garish, and other egregious upsurges of silliness entirely inappropriate for a worship service. Then came my time to expound on Acts 17. Being shocked and a bit angry, I groped for some gravity, some sense of the sacred, which was so absent from the previous 20 minutes. Since there was no pulpit, I had to find a music stand on which to put my notes. More bad form from this church. How could I clear the air? I took a moment of silence, then prayed, which is not uncommon in the lowest of church gatherings. During the prayer, I said, that we have all sinned and need forgiveness. I ask for God's presence in our midst. I don't remember all that I said, but I had to say something sacred, something that might pull us all back from the brink of utter banality and pointless amusement. I did not expect that my sermon alone could establish this Herculean task. I had entered a liturgical wasteland. Of course, there was no formal benediction, but an older man was called upon for the final improvised prayer, which involved a heartfelt reference to Popeye. I came to love liturgy late, but I am not going to leave it. This is because God has worked these patterns of ritual meaning deep into my spiritual system. Liturgy is simply too good not to share with the wider church. Let me explain. Culture structures life through patterns and repetitions. We typically stand when the national anthem is played. I shake hands with the bookstore salesman who I know. 
Mark and I both know what it means, some level of friendship and appreciation. When I teach, the students sit, and I stand or sit. My students do not stand to greet me or stand during the class sessions. These these are all taken-for-granted rituals of everyday life. Together they form a liturgy, however pedestrian or unconscious. In order to not be out of place, we respect the rules of the places we occupy. When rules are broken, liturgies are upended, people blush, if they still remember how to blush, and the police may even be summoned. All church services are liturgical, given the set patterns that govern our assemblies. These may be written or unwritten. I attended a charismatic church where the words liturgy or ritual were never spoken without the adjective dead placed before them. Yet, this church's meetings had structure, had unspoken expectations. That is, it had a liturgy. It would have been taboo, or at least odd, to see someone cross himself. There was no cross before which to do a reference, a slight bow. God must be revered. All Christians agree. The Apostle exhorts us, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, 1 Peter 3.15. While I am committed to the historic liturgy of a church I worship as an Anglican, I am developing a liturgical theology. My background, before the last ten years, only includes a sprinkle or two of liturgy. Christ followers from different traditions will worship differently, and I will not here make a case for all the elements of historical liturgy. I won't even insist on a particular order, except where it is obvious. Rather, we should consider a few liturgical elements that may bring a deeper reverence for our God into our corporate worship. I assume that all services will include a sermon or homily, so I will not mention that or where it should be placed in the service. Time in the church's gathering should be marked by a beginning. We are leaving other spaces and trying to direct our full attention on God himself. Since popular culture seldom attempts such actions, we ought to be summoned from the earbuds to the altar, from diversion to devotion, from rapidity to solemnity, from bumping into people to being with fellow worshipers. In my Anglican church, the cross is brought in during the procession. Some Protestant churches blanch at this. Nevertheless, some call to worship is appropriate. Many churches today have nothing of the sort, and the worship leader may simply make some off-handed remarks to begin the music. Others are more thoughtful. Such faulty transitions make it harder to enter into the sacred place of concentration on the holy. The call to worship may come from a church's liturgical tradition, which may be buried by popular culture liturgies. If a church has little or no liturgical sources, leaders may draw from historical Protestant sources, such as the Book of Common Prayer. I know of one Southern Baptist church in New Orleans that does just that. The Age of Miracles has not passed. The public reading of Scripture is a liturgical essential. Evangelical Protestants may have high views of the Bible, 
but which often is not translated into a high view of its reading during services, and I mean public reading. But as Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. Women and men who read should have strong and trustworthy voices and the ability to read with few mistakes. But what text should be read? Those congregations that follow the church year will have no trouble knowing what to read, since a gospel and other reading is planned throughout the seasons of the church. At minimum, the text assigned for preaching should be read, and I strongly suggest a reading from one of the four gospels also. Sin is the only problem with the world. Christ, who never sinned, died to forgive sin and set us right with God and our neighbor. Yet how often do we confess our sins publicly? Protestants believe that Christians are forgiven of all sin through their conversion by the grace of God. We must confess our sins and our need for the saving remedy of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That is once for all and assures us that we have been justified by faith through grace. Thanks be to God. Should we stop there, though? By confessing our sins through a prescribed prayer of contrition, we unite with the sinners around us and come back to the cross of Christ. I need to be reminded of my sin and its gravity before God and my neighbor. I need to say this, not just think this. I also need a form that concentrates my contrition and presents it honorably to our God. Protestant traditions offer us a rich load of confession. Consider what I say every week in my Anglican Church. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against Thee in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved Thee with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in Thy will and walk in Thy ways to the glory of Thy name. Amen. And actually, in our church, we don't say, Thee and Thou. Then our pastor gloriously assures us of the pardon through Jesus Christ by announcing this and reading a particular scripture. In some traditions, the confession of sins is done without speaking a prayer such as this. Confession is truly good for the soul. That is, in some churches, the confession may be made silently. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast, to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. Jesus Christ taught us how to pray as well. Thus, the Lord's Prayer should be part of every service. Evangelicals are usually taught conversational prayer and extemporaneous prayer. We have heard pastoral prayers and read books on prayer. That is all good. 
but we need structure and reminding. We need to pray the same prayer together week after week, year after year. Can we really exhaust its meaning through corporate repetition? The end of the Lord's Prayer contains a doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. However, a distinct and regular doxology in the church service ensures that God is rightly and richly praised every service. The doxology usually addresses God as Trinity, and this is the best practice since being the Trinity is the unique nature of the one true God. This is the glory of Patri. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. All Protestant churches celebrate communion at some times and in some way spare the Quakers. God bless them. Since the most significant event since the creation of the world was Christ's death on the cross, how can we not remember and participate in the bread and cup weekly? I wish I could partake daily. Any biblically-based observance of the Lord's Supper offers to us the gospel in word and in food. I intellectually know Jesus died for me. I have defended Christianity for over 45 years in my teaching, preaching, writing, and witness. But I need to remember Christ through the acts of my body, through liturgy. My senses need Christ. I ought to feed on him by faith and with thanksgiving, as my pastor says every week before communion or Eucharist. I will exercise liturgical self-control and only mention one other vital aspect of liturgy. In fact, it seems odd to advocate a minimal liturgy now that I have worshipped as an evangelical Anglican for over 15 years. But I conclude, appropriately enough, with the benediction. Just as a service needs a beginning, a call to worship, so it needs an ending, a blessing, on us in our pursuits. The service is ending. Our service is unending. We need to be reminded of this. A benediction, at minimum, wishes blessing on others according to God's will as revealed in Holy Scripture. I have found dozens of benedictions in the Bible, and most of these are appropriate for worship. But consider two from Scripture, which are often used in liturgical benedictions. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. 2 Corinthians 13.14 And also, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Numbers 6.24-26 By now, my high church listeners may be upset that I did not include more, and my low church listeners may think I am a stuffy traditionalist who is just going through the motions. So be it. I am still learning. I further realize that there are informal liturgical elements that summon the soul to rectitude before God, as in the historic black church. I offer my ruminations for the contemplation of God's people on how to worship well with others. Neither high church nor low church nor in-between church will be pleasing to God without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
So let us worship in spirit and in truth, however we may worship. This is Douglas Grothuis. You've been listening to Truth Tribe. If you'd like to know more about me or what my ministry might offer you, please go to my webpage at douglasgrothuis.com. And next time we will be hearing a longer paper on how the Holy Spirit grounds the knowledge of God through liturgy. Thank you for listening. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.